This is the Turn on the Jets podcast. I don't have to convince any one of those eight defensive coaches how effed up I am. These players, they want to defend MetLife Stadium for you guys. Now, here's your host, Joe Caparoso. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Turn on the Jets podcast. I'm your host, Joe Caparoso, owner of TurnOnTheJets.com. Today, we are going to give an exclusive preview of our new podcast series that myself and Connor Rogers are dropping over the weekend. We are also going to have an interview with Jordan Reed of the Draft Network breaking down this year's offensive line class. That interview is going to be hosted by James Kuntz, who hosted our episode last week and is our newest writer at Turn on the Jets. Really good insight from both Jordan and James. That's going to run for about 20-ish minutes or so on the back half of this episode, so make sure you stick around and listen to it. But... The first half of this episode is going to be an exclusive 12-minute preview of our new podcast that is going to drop over the weekend with the first episode being available on Sunday and then a new episode being available each of the following nine days. This is a 10-part docu-series project put together by Connor Rogers and myself called Badlands. And what it is is a look at how and why the New York Jets are on the verge of 10 years of missing the playoffs and how they can get out of their current situation. Unlike this podcast, each episode is going to be ad-free. Unlike this podcast, each episode is going to be at least 40 minutes with most of the episodes getting closer to 50 or 60 minutes. And unlike some of these episodes, the audio quality is going to be substantially higher as we recorded all of these with professional equipment. Uh, and made sure to really button up on the technical side. I know that sometimes is an issue on this feed. That will certainly not be an issue at all on this docu-series of content. This series is going to be a little different or different than anything myself or Connor have done when it comes to the New York Jets. Both Connor and I have been working together for a long time on Jets content and decided that we wanted to take a step back this year and do something a little bit different. And really to holistically take a look at the organization and what's been the problem, uh, how they can fix it. Talk to some people who we both know have really interesting insight into the state of the team uh, and why certain decisions were made and weren't made. And also share some little tidbits that we've come across in our years of covering the team that we've kind of been sitting on for a while and been waiting for a project like this to release. This podcast is going to cost $9.99 which will give you a 12-month subscription where you will get immediate access to all 10 episodes, again, all of which are at least 40 minutes, most of which are closer to 60 minutes, all of which are ad-free. Also, if you subscribe to this feed, Connor and I, at least once a month, particularly around free agency, around the NFL draft, after the NFL draft, are going to drop an exclusive episode on the feed that will roughly be about an hour long and be both of us giving our insights on the team in a little bit more of a longer form uh, format than we do on our weekly shows. So you won't just get the initial 10 shows, which are already cooked up, produced, and developed, and ready to drop starting on Sunday. Uh, you also get some content on a rolling basis. So a dollar a podcast, and ultimately will come out to probably being about 25 cents a podcast after the entire year. So would appreciate any support. I promise you, if you are a Jets fan, you will absolutely love this. It is literally 10, 45 to 60 minute in-depth conversations about the New York Jets. Uh, We were really lucky to get an interesting range of people to join us on the podcast, ranging from 
Manish Mehta, who certainly has one type of relationship with the team right now, to Connor Hughes, who certainly has a different type of relationship with the team right now, uh, to Alex Jaimo, who spent a couple of years working for as a reporter for the New York Jets organization, uh, to Jason Fitzgerald of Over the Cap, and Tony Pauline to give further insight into what happened uh, with Mike McKagan and Adam Gase. Sam Munson from Pro Football Focus talking about Sam Darnold. Matt Miller from Bleacher Report breaking down the recent Jets draft history and what their strategy could be going forward. Uh, an episode hosted by me, Connor, and Dalbin talking everything about the 2015 season and what a missed opportunity it was. Uh, Mike Tanier from the Bleacher Report talking about some of the Jets' front office issues and how they could improve them going forward. Uh, just a big guest list uh, that we are particularly excited to roll out to you guys and uh, really think you're going to enjoy. And um, like I said, this will be available on Podbean uh, and I will be pushing the links out. Trust me, they'll be easy to find uh, starting on Sunday, episode one, which features a 58 minute conversation between me, Connor and Manish Mehta about everything that's gone on with this organization, everything that's currently going on with this organization, what we agree about, what we disagree about, will be available Sunday, uh, followed by episode two and episode three each passing day. It'll be very easy to subscribe. One click, $9.99, you're locked. You'll get the new episode to listen to on Podbean every single day. And then, like I said, you will be hearing from me and Connor on a rolling basis going forward. Before I give you a little more info on the podcast and we drop our exclusive preview of episode one, I want to remind you guys that living with chronic pain is the worst. It's more than a feeling of discomfort. It can affect your whole life. Many of my listeners probably have some type of pain that has prevented them from relaxing and sleeping or stopped them from exercising. Perhaps it's been ongoing for a few weeks now and it hasn't improved with any of the treatments they've tried. Enter Omax Health. If you're looking to get rid of nagging muscle joint pain immediately while providing long-lasting recovery, then you need to try the natural breakthrough pain relief solution, CryoFreeze, CBD roll-on developed by Omax Health. This non-prescription, triple-action pain relief roll-on is specifically formulated to block pain receptors, reduce inflammation, and improve muscle and joint flexibility. The best part, this is 100% natural, CBD-powered remedy, works its magic within 10 minutes of application and the relief lasts up to eight hours, much longer than over-the-counter products. Omax Health is offering my listeners 20% off a full bottle of cryo-free CBD pain relief roll-on, plus free shipping. This discount also applies towards any products site-wide. Just go to omaxhealth.com today and enter code OVERTIME. That's O-M-A-X-Health.com and enter code OVERTIME to get 20% off cryo-freeze and site-wide. Now, I know you guys love listening to me do reads, and you get that every single week here on the Turn on the Jets podcast. But on Badlands, after you subscribe, there will be no ad reads. It's ad-free, baby. Uh, again, we don't regularly charge for content. Actually, we've never charged for any content in the 10-ish years I'm doing uh, Turn on the Jets. But wanted to work on something a little bigger. And This is you know about 10 hours of recorded content, 10 different interviews. I also forgot to mention when going through our guests, we have a good conversation with Chase Stewart, a pro- football perspective about the, def- the different Jet GMs throughout uh, this drought and also projecting forward for Joe Douglas about what worked and what could work for him going forward. Um, and it's, uh, it was really interesting as it came together to hear some of the insight that Connor had, 
that corroborated some of the stuff that I had been hearing and then some, some of the interviews and conversations we had, just really interesting stories and insights that paint a really clear and consistent picture of what some of the ups and downs have been with this organization and how they could prospectively improve things going forward. This is not fully a history-centric podcast, although we will hit on a lot of historical things from the past nine years that went wrong that led to the current situation. Uh, we do have an episode that's solely focused on projecting on the team going forward, and it's impossible to talk about these things without referencing the current situation in the organization, which includes thoughts on Sam Darnold, Joe Douglas, Adam Gase, Le'Veon Bell, Robbie Anderson, uh, and all the other hot topics around the team right now. But you know, I can say after listening to the episodes, after our good friend Scott Mason from Play Like a Jet produced them, and our good friend Q lended us some intro music to use and weave throughout, uh, and that I'm thrilled with how it came out. And we've been working on it for a few months and just excited to uh, roll it out through Podbean and we'll make sure that it's a really easy access point for you guys and think all Jet fans are going to enjoy it. So what you're going to listen to now is a 12-minute snippet of our first episode, uh, which kind of gives you a feel for what the conversation is going to be like. We'll also on a rolling basis on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, be dropping out little 30 to 60 to 90 second snippets of stories that we're particularly excited about that we think will help drive you back to uh, listen to the podcast. So again, Badlands, New York Jets 10-part podcast will be available via subscription on Podbean starting this Sunday. Would appreciate any and all support around it. And before we jump into our exclusive preview of episode one, followed by our interview with Jordan Reed of the Draft Network. Want to remind you guys that every night, local police departments across America receive hundreds of calls from burglar alarms. The vast majority of the time, they have no idea whether the alarm is real. Is there really a crime going on or not? All the alarm company can tell is the motion sensor, motion sensor went off. Simply safe home security is different. If you were like me, and are one of those guys who is hypersensitive to every single sound and is tired of having to sleep with a knife under your bed, Simply Safe is the solution. If there's a break-in, Simply Safe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. That means police dispatch up to 350% faster than a normal burglar alarm. You get comprehensive protection for your entire home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your home. Entry, motion, and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, and carbon monoxide poisoning. It's 24-7 monitoring by live security professionals, and it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash overtime, and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go now and be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash overtime so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash overtime. Let's jump into previewing Badlands, followed by our Draft Network interview with Jordan Reed. Check back for another episode next week on this feed. But even more importantly, check out what we're going to drop for you starting this weekend. Badlands goes live. Very excited about it. And we will talk to everybody next week. Bowles got four years. Mangini got three years. It's not like they've been doing one and done or even two years with coaches. Uh, the last coach they fired after two years or less, I think, was Kotite, which was, I think, more than justified. I mean, they didn't fire Al Groh after his one year. He left uh, to go coach college. So the Jets have generally been patient. Mangini was the weird one because he went 10-6, and 4-12, and 9-7, and, and then he gets fired. And that tells you everything you need to know, that 
they didn't like Eric Mangini. Yeah. Eric Mangini was he was not a bad football coach. He's a very good personnel guy, and I think Mangini and I'll t- I could talk about this now because it's not going to be an episode. I could tell as a fact had problems with ownership on personnel decisions, and Brett Favre was one. There was multiple times, and that is a and I'm so glad Manish is coming on. This is a good lead up to Manish because Manish can speak to owners getting involved with football operational decisions. And, and this is a problem that it really it, it became illuminated to me during the Mangini era, but it's still going on. I mean, look at Le'Veon Bell and Adam Gase right now. That is one million percent an owner-driven signing that conflicts with a coach and now a GM that has openly looked to trade him. And not being shy about it. And not just not everybody on the same page. And ownership meddling in football decisions has been a long ongoing problem with this team. And I think this team, the perception is that they are very sensitive about the coverage around them. And candidly, I found that to be pretty true from what I've seen. I haven't seen anything that really pushes against it. I think they're very mindful of how they're covered by the local press. I don't have anything bad to say about my dealings with the team. I think they've been really kind for us as to us as new media outlets. Now we're not regularly dealing with the personnel executives, at least on the record. We're dealing with people in the media department, in the PR department. I think they've been open-minded to collaborating with us, but there's one thing that I've seen consistently, and not just dealing with them, but in dealing with people who deal with them and talking with people who have either worked for the organization or been around the organization, is that ownership does get inv- ownership and business people get involved with football decisions uh, at a higher volume than you'd like. And there is probably too much sensitivity to media coverage. I think Dom Cosentino had that long write-up where he interviewed, what, Pepper Johnson, and they were talking about this, and that vibed up to everything I've seen and heard, and it that you do that consistently. It's how you go 6 and 10, 5 and 11, 7 and 9, and you don't have a consistent philosophy and culture, and culture just becomes something that is a buzzword in a bunch of articles in the preseason every year but doesn't actually mean everything. I mean, how many times... Have you read or we seen the same article about the Jets' culture? I mean, we'll get one in uh, May or June and, you know, right around OTAs when, you know, feelings are riding high and what Adam Gase is doing. And like I've said this to you, Joe, you've said it, you know, publicly before. We're hard on Adam Gase. That doesn't mean we're rooting against Adam Gase. It's just calling it like we see it. And, I mean, hopefully things change, but we're going to go back on these 10 years and explain what happened and you're going to look at going into this year and go, wow, it, it might be set up. Something has to change. Yep. And hopefully Joe Douglas is the guy yep. for that. That's the one uh, X factor in all of this that I'll be curious to see how it plays out. Fingers crossed. I mean, look, he has the deal. He's made hires that the Jets haven't made in the past. I think it's Douglas and Darnold, right? I think there's two things that can overcome Adam Gase and the Jets' overall situation right now because they are still doing trends that have been problematic in the past. If Douglas is as good as Jet fans hope he is and how his reputation hopefully builds him up to be, and if Darnold just becomes a truly great quarterback, that could overcome things. Look at Deshaun Watson with the Texans. Is Bill O'Brien a great coach? I don't think so. Um, Has Houston always made the smartest personnel moves and always had the best offensive line around him? No, but he has been able to overcome that. Um, So you got to hope that Darnold makes the quote-unquote leap in year three that he really didn't quite make in year two for a variety of reasons. Uh, 
And that could hopefully be something that overcomes it because nobody who we're both fans of the team, we both, you know, cover the team directly or indirectly likes them being bad every year. Uh, people will be like, oh, it's, it's good for you guys. If they're bad, it's good for the clicks. First off, it doesn't even work like that, especially on Twitter. No one's clicking on tweets for money, <laughs> for money. Ones. That doesn't work like that. People, it, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> That'd be it's lovely. That'd be great. But, yeah. I keep more Sopranos guests, even yes. though that I'm already doing, but It'd be better if they're good. Everything is better when they're good. It's more fun to watch. It's more fun to cover. We get more listens. We get more actual clicks on things, more interactions, because people are excited and the games mean something in December and November. Nobody likes Christmas Eve. I remember in this game a few years ago, Christmas Eve, the 5 and 10 Jets playing the Chargers with Bryce Petty starting. Who the hell, who wants to cover that game or gets excited talking about Bryce Petty starting games in December, which happened twice to us? The worst kind of games. They really are. It's just unwatchable. It's, you know, and then you got people that, well, maybe Bryce has, you know, is the future. And, like, I respect that optimism. I respect that optimism. But just doing the draft so long, that, that kind of stuff has gone a little bit out the window for me where it's, you know, you got to be a realist at some point. You really do. Ready for Petty. Speaking of Petty, two years in a row, drafted my least favorite quarterback in the That's draft, right. who I made jokes about the whole pre-draft process, Petty and then Hackenberg back-to-back. They have a weird trend of doing that to me, too. I, I was extremely low on Petty. I'll never get over Christian Hackenberg going in the second round, but I also was way lower on Luke Falk than most people, and he starts three games for them. Now he's filing you know, a, a grievance against the team, so so he was Gase's guy. Gase, a new... Uh, Assembly all with interesting uh, injury complaints against the team. And before we get into our discussion with Manish, which we're excited about and will guarantee to be interesting, I'm just going through in my head the list of quarterbacks that started games or played a key part in this overall draft. So 2010 ends, the Jets run it back with Sanchez. Statistically, he has a much better year, but I think if you watched him, he, he took some concerning steps back in some ways. Then they give him the apology contract for the Peyton Manning run. And the day after, or two days after they sign him, they trade for Tim Tebow, multiple picks. So that was the, the Tebow year. So you have both of them. And then you had Greg McElroy, who actually started a game that year, not Tebow. Uh, then into 2013, Sanchez was going to start, got hurt in the preseason. So we get two years of Geno with some Chris Sims mixed in. So we went from McElroy was the savior to then Sims was the savior off the bench. Then we think it's going to be Gino in 2015. Who could have expected Jawgate uh, to happen <laughs> in training camp? $600. Uh, I still, again, of all the stories we've had, and we've had some interesting ones, that one always pops off the page. We get the magical Fitzpatrick year, which five years ago, now the Dolphins are dealing with it. Then the Fitzpatrick standoff. All off season, he's at Knicks games, he's at Rangers games, pay the guy, comes in to training camp, has the massive game on Thursday night, and then it's just a complete mess. We go back to Petty, then back to Gino, then back to Fitzpatrick, and then the one year of McCowntown, our guy who just played through a torn hamstring in a playoff game. He's something. And I'll tell you this, McCown knew he was signing up for a tank year. Which I have, no, I don't respect anyone as much as I respect Josh McCown in the NFL. He was the, the general of the tank for everywhere he went. And he came to the Jets and he did it again. And then finally, we get to our boy Sam, 
who has missed three games each of his first two years, but shown encouraging flashes in his two thir- his two seasons. And we do have a, a Sam-centric episode, which we're excited about later in this series. Um, but the guys who filled the gap, uh, we got McCown when he was a little past it in 2018. Yeah. And then, of course, the great Trevor, Trevor Simeon and Luke Falk this year. Which is just, uh, I, like, not even surprising, sadly. But just look at the names that have played quarterback for this team. That's why you cling on to Sam and you say, can this just be it? I mean, he's 22 years old. So, like, Sam could legitimately be playing here for 15 more years. If that actually is the case, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about will hopefully fall by the wayside. Because that gives you a baseline of being competitive every single year. And he needs to be good because the AFC has Lamar Jackson – Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson. It's going to have Joe Burrow. It's probably going to have Tua have in the division. Uh, I won't get into a long Josh Allen de- debate. I've been doing enough of that on Twitter, but he's a more mobile Mark Sanchez, so there's that. Is there any other young quarterbacks I'm forgetting in the AFC that I need to be stressed about playing in recent years? I mean, the jury's out on Baker right now, but this was not a good year. Let's just call it like it is. And, we'll, you know, there's a lot of question marks. We'll see what happens to Drew Locke. We'll see what happens with Ryan Tannehill, the great Ryan Tannehill and Gardner Minshew. So, yeah, it's the bottom line is there's guys that could play. And I, I'm a firm believer in Sam. I want to make that clear. And I think he's going to be very good. Although people do need to stop on Twitter. Don't be so sensitive every time we say something mildly critical of them. Every fumble and every interception is not someone else's fault. Some of them are on Sam. Some of them are on the terrible team that's been around Sam, unfortunately. But we like Sam. We're rooting for Sam. We think Sam's going to be hashtag good. I think he will be. Yeah, for I think a it's, long time. I think it's okay for Jet fans to believe that, and they should. The problems are more around it, which we're going to dive deeper into. So we're going to move to our conversation with Manish Mehta, a range, wide-ranging conversation about the past 10 years. And he's been on it the same amount of time we have. Sometimes we fought with him. Sometimes we've got along with him. Either way, we're all going to talk it out now. Manish Mehta, New York Daily News columnist and reporter for the past 15 years. So Manish, this team missed the playoffs for nine years. If you had to say, if someone came up to you right now and said, how did the New York Jets miss the playoffs for nine years in a row? What is the first way that you answer that question? Well, everything trickles from the top down, right? So I think there's a litany of poor decisions, uh, and the person who has, uh, you know, who signs the checks is Woody Johnson for the most part of the decade, and then Christopher Johnson. So I think poor ownership is at the root of the problem, and then off of that, uh, the people that the owners hired to make critical decisions made errors. So uh, you know, in a simplified way, I'd say that. When you have weak ownership, it's no surprise that uh, the team uh, isn't successful. Manish, obviously you've covered a lot of different eras with the Jets, whether it's Rex, and then you get to the GM side, you have Idzik, McCagnan. Would you consider the Jets actually one of the more patient franchises? I mean, you look at the time Rex had here, you look at how many years Bowles got. Uh, I don't want to say this year was a disaster, but it was definitely underachieving from Adam Gase. Would you classify them as a more patient franchise? I think when it comes to the coaches, yes, uh, because as you mentioned, Rex was around for six seasons. He missed the playoffs in his final four seasons, so after that red-hot start going to the back-to-back AFC Championship games, uh, he did not have another winning season, but Woody Johnson kept him on board for a number of reasons. I, I think uh, the cachet that Rex brought to the organization was a big part of that uh, 
And then, you know, Todd Bowles lasted four seasons. He never made the postseason, and after his first 10-win season, he had a losing record for three consecutive years. So uh, this isn't a Cleveland Brown situation in which they're turning over head coaches uh, every other year. Uh, and I would say, for the most part, ownership has been patient with the general manager, uh, with the one notable exception of John Idzik, who lasted only two years. And I think there's a number of factors for that as well. Uh, you know, clearly it's it's very difficult to evaluate a general manager in such a short amount of time. Uh, but history has now shown that the decisions that Idzik made in his two seasons in charge were poor decisions. Uh, that coupled with the fact of this fan groundswell uh, of negativity surrounding this particular general manager made it easy for Woody Johnson to you know to pull the plug so quickly. But I would say by and large, ownership has been patient. Uh, with their coaches, and uh, again, with that, with that, with that one notable exception, they've given their general managers, I think, a fair amount of time to operate as well. Hi guys, hope you're doing well. My name is James Coons, and I'm a writer for Turn Twitter at Fuego Jets Takes, spelled Fuego F-U-E-G-O Jets Takes. I'm really excited for this interview that we're about to bring you. In anticipation of the NFL draft, there's been a lot of talk about prospects that the Jets could target. So I thought it would be insightful to hear about some of these prospects from NFL draft experts. Today, we're going to be discussing the top offensive tackle prospects, and I'm extremely excited to be speaking with Jordan Reed, senior draft analyst over at the Draft Network. The Draft Network is one of the most rapidly growing media sites for NFL draft coverage and college football analysis, as a lot of you may know. Jordan, alongside his co-worker Jonah Tolls, is co-host of the Locked On College Football Podcast, which I highly recommend. So without any further ado, I'm pleased to present to you Jordan Reed. Hey, Jordan. How's it going? Hey, James. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure being here. Of course, of course. So just to jump right in, looking to the draft, many analysts and fans expect the Jets to be targeting an offensive tackle at number 11 overall. I know you've spent a lot of time watching and analyzing the offensive tackle class. And according to your latest big board from February 8th, here's how you rank the OT group. At number one, you had Jedrick Wills from Alabama. Number two, you had Tristan Wirfs of Iowa. At three, you had Andrew Thomas from Georgia. At four, you had Mekhi Becton from Louisville. And then lastly, at five, you had Josh Jones from Houston. So I guess the place I want to start is at the top. I think most Jets fans understand that barring a Jedrick Wills bong video being released the day of the draft, there's virtually no chance we're going to see him at 11. But I was wondering if you could briefly talk about what makes Wills so special as a prospect and how you see his game translating to the NFL. Yeah, it's a really good question just because you get in comparison and contrastions with all these different uh, prospects. And I think the biggest thing that separates Wills is just his maturity and ready to playness right now. I think that's the biggest thing that really separates him from this group. And I think he's a guy that really can play on either side, even though he's played predominantly right tackle. But during his time at Alabama, I think he has the versatility to slide over to the left side or even slide down inside. If a team drafts him to play him inside, I think he's very capable of doing that as well. But you talk about him holding up in the SEC, probably the most, or I should say the toughest conference in the country. And he was just lights out the entire year. And I had a second round grade on him entering this year. But, I mean, he played lights out this year, and I was really happy to see him take that next step in his development. I mean, his match and mirror skills as a pass protector is really special. Now, he's not as athletic as a Tristan Wirfs or a Josh Jones, but I think he makes up for it as a run blocker just because that's really where his where his skill set really shines just because he's a guy I like to say he creates craters in defenses. That just gives you the type of movement 
that he creates in these defenses. So I think his power is something that separates him. And then his ready to playness right away is something that definitely catapults him to the top of this group. Now, looking at the guy that you have at number two, Tristan Wirfs, he's a guy who's definitely in contention for the Jets pick at 11. Although I'm not exactly sure if he will get there because the Browns pick one spot ahead of us. And Tristan Wirfs seems like a very good fit for their scheme. Um, but just talking about Wirfs, I know there's been some talk about maybe he's better suited for guard when he gets to the NFL. How do you feel about Wirfs? And do you share those concerns that maybe he's not really a tackle at the NFL level? I think the combine will clear up a lot of that stuff just because you get the length of measurements, you get the arms and the hands and all those measurements as well. So that'll really clear up some of the guard tackle talk. But as far as I think he looks long enough to play at tackle, and I think he's the most athletic of this group of the top five uh, that we're going through here. And I just love how nimble his feet are. He, like, he plays the game like he's walking on pillows. And that's the best way to really describe how athletic he is. He's a guy that loves to get outside of the tackle box and block on these screens. He could play outside of the tackle box and just blocking these various different platforms. So that's something I love about him. I don't think his immaturity is as good as a Wills or Andrew Thomas of that nature. He's not as strong as those guys. But as far as the athleticism, I think he's the best of the bunch. And I think he'd be a really good fit. Now, we'll see uh, if he does end up making it to 11 to the Jets. But if I had to guess right now, unless barring his measurements being really bad or really poor and not meeting a lot of thresholds to play tackle, I think he's probably not going to be there for the Jets. Okay. And what type of scheme do you think would work best for uh, Wurfs? I know you talked about his athleticism, so I'm assuming some sort of zone scheme. I think he could survive in either, just because I think he shows a mean streak of being able to survive in a manner gap-blocking scheme. But if he really wants to see his true potential, I think it would be best for him in a zone scheme, just because it's, it caters to his skill set a little bit better than just blocking guys and getting pushed vertically. He's a guy that really likes to win with those angles, and he likes to move laterally a whole bunch especially as a run blocker. So I think it would be better suited in a zone scheme, but I think he could survive, but his potential wouldn't be as great in a manner gap blocking scheme. Now, moving on to the guy who you have as number three, who really began the year as the consensus number one offensive tackle, and that's Andrew Thomas. And the question that I and a lot of Jets fans who have been tracking his draft stock over the past few months have been wondering is, why has he fallen so far down mock drafts and so far down big boards? Um, like, how do we explain that? How do we account for that? I think it's just a matter of people, like, falling in love with the new thing. And you see Jedrick Wills come about. You see Josh Jones come about. And it's kind of like Andrew Thomas has kind of been like that old toy in the corner that's been so reliable for so long. But you mm -hmm. get you forget how reliable he was for you so long. And then you get – the, the new girl on the block that you, you know, that you have interest in. You kind of forget about how old your ex-girlfriend or, or the reliable one was <laughs> before that. Just to, just putting it in his lamest terms. I'm sure you got the reference there, but uh, just to put a little bit of humor into it. But Andrew Thomas, he's still a really good prospect. And I think he's just as good and if not better than some of these guys that we're going to talk about or that we have previously talked about as well. And it would not surprise me one bit if he goes on and has the best career out of any of these guys. And you talk about a guy that is ready made to play right away. Andrew Thomas has done that. I mean, throughout the past two years, he's played, I believe, 24 games uh, as the team's left tackle. And then the rest of his career, he played right tackle early on. Or excuse me, he played 15 games as a freshman at right tackle. And then the rest of his career at Georgia at left tackle. So he made the transition. He has the versatility on either side that you're looking for. So you're not worried about him uh, if he does. If he doesn't survive at left tackle, he already has experience at right tackle. So he's shown to be able to survive in a variety of different platforms. So I like that about him. Now the struggles come when 
he's asked to protect against speedy edge rushers up the field. His pass set, I think, is he needs to get more depth on his pass set because what you see is that he does something that's called opening the gate a little bit too early, and that's just called just opening his hips a little bit too prematurely. And I think that's something that is a cause for concern, especially entering the NFL where you're getting guys that's going to be very speedy coming up field and fast out of the blocks. I think that's something that he does struggle with, and he comes a bit of a leaner. And he puts a little bit much of he puts a little bit much too much forward lean into his body weight, and you really start to see him stumble over a little bit. So pass protection is something that he needs to work on, but I think it's going to be somewhat of an easy fix for him. But as far as a run blocker, I think him and Wheels are definitely the best of the group. So I mentioned earlier that I love listening to the Locked On College Football podcast, and I remember a few months ago you talked about um, Andrew Thomas at length. And there was one player in particular that you compared him to in terms of his reliability and the way in which he flies under the radar. And this is a guy that Jets listeners are going to be very familiar with. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, so the name that I talked about was DeBrickishaw Ferguson, a guy who I think I had a very, very underrated career with the Jets, a guy you're very familiar with and Jets faithful are very familiar with. And he just doesn't get his due diligence or his due, due justice. In a sense, it's because he had a really good 10-year career, I believe it was, and it seems to kind of fly under the radar just because this guy that didn't miss any games. He was consistent as they came and a model of consistency during his career, and I think Andrew Thomas was the exact same way. I believe he's missed one game out of 43 that he has played in, so that just goes to show you the durability that he has, and he's just a model of consistency, and I think Andrew Thomas is going to be a really good player for whichever team he does land for. Now, looking at scheme, I know that some of the objections kind of among Jets fans about Thomas, or not objections, but maybe even questions, are how well would he fit into the Jets' mainly outside zone type scheme? Um, How do you feel about that? It would be a bit of a challenge for him just because he's a guy that really likes to get vertical push up the field. And the difference between man and gap, or man-gap power schemes and zone schemes, I like to break it down in as lamest terms, is that you're beating people with angles just because in zone scheme I'm speaking of, you're beating people with angles laterally just because you get these undersized guys, but they're athletic. So they win beating guys to spots as opposed to these man or gap power schemes where you're getting a body on a body and you're just allowing guys to just bully and overwhelm people. And that's something that I think Andrew Thomas does a better job of is bullying guys at the point of attack as opposed to moving laterally and beating these guys to these certain spots along the line of scrimmage, whether it's the first or the second level. So it would be a bit of a challenge for him. And he's a guy that very similar to worse, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think he could survive in a zone scheme, but I think you're going to see more of his potential and his best peaks in a manner gap blocking scheme. Okay. Um, now we kind of, I mentioned this when I was introing Thomas, but whether, what do you think the chances are that he actually makes it to 11 with the jets? It's kind of hard to get a gauge on him right now because opinions are all over the place. I mean, you're hearing guys like Matt Miller come out and say he's a late first-round grade, and then I was talking to one of my scouting buddies in the industry saying, you know, they have him as a top-two guy on their board. So uh-huh. you really don't know. It's hard to get a gauge on him right now, but I think going to the combine here in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to get a better gauge on it. But, I mean, if he's one guy that does fall outside of the top 15, I mean, somebody would get an absolute steal in him. Mm. Moving on um, – the guy that you have number four on your board, Makai Becton, has really had a meteoric rise over the last month um, and a half. Um, you know, it seems like it started when he first popped up on that Daniel Jeremiah mock draft at number four to the Giants. Um, and 
I'm wondering what are your thoughts on him? He's it seems like he's generally perceived as a more risky prospect. Could you speak to that if you think that if that's actually a fair assessment of him? Yeah, so every time I'm asked about Makai, I have to tell the story about him. And I'm sure you might have heard it on the podcast already. But so my brother, he he was a former coach at Louisville. He was an offensive assistant there last year. And he was telling me about Makai then. He was saying, man, we got this 370-pound tackle, but he's built like he weighs 320 pounds. And he said, just go. They had just finished playing Notre Dame. He said, he's going to send me the film from that game. And I said, okay. He said, check him out in the second half, though. And basically what he told me was that he had a block in the second quarter on Julian McGuire, who was a very talented edge rusher in mm-hmm. this class that's from Notre Dame. He had a block on him at the end of the second quarter. And he said, Makai looked down at his hands at halftime and said, oh, my God, I can't believe I just did that with these hands. And in the second half, he was just absolutely destroying people after that. So he's <laughs> a guy that re- the light really came on for him after that Notre Dame game. And what you saw was a guy that really noticed his abilities after that and I think something that really hurt Makai last year was that when Bobby Petrino was there he was flipping from left side to right side left side to right side depending on the strength of the play so whichever way they were running the ball he was going to be he was going to be lined up on that side so he never really found a home and was able to get comfortable on one side but Scott Satterfield comes in they challenge him with his weight I mean he drops over 20 percent in his body fat you can tell he's still a bit big but being 370 pounds, he doesn't look it at all. And I'm sure you've seen some of the highlight films from his high school years. He was playing basketball, dunking the ball. So he's very athletic. And I think he's a guy that's probably going to test overly well at the combine. So that wouldn't surprise me at all. But just some of the things that he brings to the table, man. Like, if I was a famous person, he probably would be the first guy that I call to be my bodyguard just because (laughs) this guy absolutely bullies people, man. He's throwing guys all over the field. And it's not like it's any old Joe that he's doing that out there. He's doing it to guys from Clemson. I mean, Syracuse, Syracuse has very talented edge rushers, and he was just absolutely bullying them all game. So he's a devastating run blocker, and I love that about him just because you talk about a guy that can bring an identity to your offensive line. He's the guy that can do that, and he's already seen, I think, the best comparison for him is probably Trent Brown, the offensive tackle from the Raiders. I think that's a really good comparison for him just because I think he's a guy that's going to take the game a bit more serious than what Trent Brown did coming in just because you know about the weight concerns from when he was with the 49ers and the Patriots, but he's a guy that loves the game. Uh, he, he was one of the first Virginia-born players to ever attend Louisville, so that just goes to show you that he's a he, he's, he's a very, very level-headed individual, and everything that I've heard about him has been great, but the one thing that you do worry about is the pass protection standpoint with him just because he's a guy that really hasn't been able to find a home on either side, and if you notice that if you're on the left side or the right side, you're really stepping with opposite feet every single time and so this really is his first year getting comfortable at left tackle and it did show and his hands aren't as violent when he's getting when he's when he's punching these defensive ends uh, when they're going up the field so I think that's something that he's going to have to improve upon but I think as time goes on I think he could be a franchise left tackle or right tackle just because of the demeanor that he brings to the table but he's just scratching the surface of what he can turn into. Yeah, one of the things I noticed when I watched Becton, and I watched him against Clemson, Wake Forest, and Notre Dame, is it seems like in that scheme, there are very few NFL-style pass pro reps that he's really um, getting experience with. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, I mean, first of all, do you, like, is that a fair assessment of their offense? And two, is that is that a liability? Is that something that concerns you, that lack of um, NFL-style pass pro reps? Well, that's just because they weren't very good up front. And Louisville has been, a known, been known as a team that has not been very good up front for a very long time. They haven't had any professional prospects in quite some time. So uh, that was one of the biggest reasons why they wanted to get the ball out really quick. 
and they're known for not having really good quarterbacks in years past outside of Lamar Jackson. Since he has left, they haven't had any good quarterbacks that can push the ball down the field. They've had more an athletic type that get the ball out really quick. So uh, that's really the basic of the, the basis of their offense. They want to get the ball out as quickly as possible. And that just goes back to my point of Makai not really being able to show off what he can be as a pass protector just because he hasn't been able to show that he can that he can sustain for a very long period of time. And I think that's something that he does have to work on is that he kind of gives up early in reps just because he's used to winning so quick just because of his power and his shock value that he brings to the table when he has to get in a stalemate or a back and forth battle. He's just not used to that. So. Being in the NFL, getting that type of experience, I think that's going to help him a lot. But it does it does scare you a little bit just because you don't know how he's going to respond once he gets in those stalemates. But I think just like we saw, once he, get his, once he gets his feet wet a little bit and he understands what he has to do in those stalemates and he has to respond to these counter moves that these very advanced NFL rushers are going to show him, I think that's going to help him a ton. Do you think he could be a scheme fit for an outside zone rushing team? I don't think so. Even though he is super athletic, I just don't think his endurance is going to be good over the longevity of that just because he's a guy that does wear down a little bit as games do go on just because, I mean, it's understandable. He's a very massive human being. He's not a guy that's built to play, you know, 60 plus plays a game. That's really not his skill set. But if you ask him to get in a ground and pound style, style of offense that can mix in some short game or quick game concepts, I think that really could help him. And I think I wish he could land with the team like the Baltimore Ravens. Just imagine him in that system. That would be that would be incredible. But of course, he's not going to last that long for them. But I think he probably would fit in well with the Jets uh, just because what they do. But they're going to have to make some changes for him. And I think they would be willing to do that. But we'll see what does happen. Okay. now moving to the guy you have, number five, who's also risen over the last month um, in large part due to how well he played at the senior bowl is Josh Jones. Um, I'm sort of wondering, how do you feel about Josh Jones as a prospect? Do you think that 11, it seems like it may be a little bit rich for him right now. Um, and what type of scheme would maximize Josh Jones's potential? So he's more of your upside pick right now. And I think if he runs really well at the combine, it would not shock me if the Browns take him at 10. I think that's probably his ceiling right now. I think that's probably the highest pick he could go, but he's a guy that definitely has to play in a zone scheme just because he's not very strong right now. That's what you notice about his film. He does get tossed and turned a little bit more than you would like, but as far as a pass protector, I think he's probably as polished, if not better, if not the best in this class, and I think he only gave up like four pressures and no sacks or something like that. So that's really a phenomenal stat for him from last year. But he's a guy that's going to need a little bit of seasoning. He's a bit He's a bit raw right now. As far as his technique as a run blocker, I think once he gains some more strength in that area, I think he'll be better as far as creating some push there. But as far as a pass protector, I think he's as polished as they come. And that was shown at the senior bowl. I mean, he was phenomenal at the senior bowl. Nobody was able to get past him down there. But when he had to run block in the 11 on 11 in the scrimmage portions and then in the game, he did struggle a little bit. So he's more of your zone scheme guy that really likes to beat guys with angles as opposed to getting vertical push up the field. Mm. Um, do you think he's ready to play now in the NFL or do you think it would benefit him to be behind maybe a veteran and work his way into the starting lineup? I think he's ready right now, but you have to understand that there's going to be some bumps and bruises with him just because he is very weak right now. He's a guy that's going to give up some pressures from time to time, but those in-game reps are going to help him a bunch. And what he showed uh, in a couple games this year 
was that he learns as time goes on. UCF was a great game where he gave up pressure early on in the game, but he came back and he was lights out the rest of the game. And that's something that you love to see, especially in a young offensive tackle, is how well they respond to adversity. And he's done a really good job of that, especially as a pass protector. Is there any comparison to be made between him and Andre Dillard, who Joe Douglas, when he was with the Eagles back then, last year's draft, took um, and traded up for even over the Houston Texans? Is there any comparison to be made between those two? As far as career projection, I think you're absolutely spot on as far as how they can come into the league and where they could be projected. Now, we'll see where Josh Jones does end up going, but I think Diller landed in a perfect spot to where he didn't have to play right away just because I don't think he was as good as a run blocker as Josh Jones is currently, but I think he's much more athletic, and I don't think Josh Jones is going to test nearly as good as Diller did last year just because Diller, he was amazing last year at the combine. I don't think he's going to run, jump, or you know do anything of that nature as well as Diller did, but I think he's probably going to be a tick below that tier as far as how he's going to test but I think he's a little bit more ready to play just because of how well he is as a pass protector. And then even though he's he's just a little bit above average as a run blocker, I think he's a little bit ahead of where Dillard was. Okay. So lastly, I'd like to do kind of a quick rapid fire segment where I'll give a category, for example, player or offensive tackle with the highest floor. And then you'll give one of these prospects who you think matches that description. And if you want to elaborate for a few sentences, feel free. Uh, but I kind of like to make this a quick, hard-hitting segment. Um, so you ready? Yeah. All right. So prospect with the highest ceiling in the NFL. In this draft class or just in general? In in the offensive tackle draft class. In the offensive tackle draft class. Highest ceiling. Uh, that's a really good question. I'm going to go with – I'm going to say Wheels just because I trust him a little bit more to play right away. Um, I think he, he's a guy that, you know, I love using this term. He's a clear packaging prospect. And if you think about a package really landing on your doorstep or something that you order through the mail from Amazon or wherever, if it comes in a clear package, you know exactly what you're getting from day one. And I think that's what you're getting in Jedrick Will. So uh, he might not be a guy that ends up the best of the bunch, but I know what I'm getting. So I'm going to go with the same mm-hmm. bet in him. Okay. Now, prospect with the highest floor. I'm going to go with Andrew Thomas just because I just like Wills. I know what I'm getting in him. And I mean, he dominated in the SEC and I love that about him. Similar to Wills, both of those guys dominated in the SEC, but left tackle, I'm going to go with that all day. So I'm going to go with Andrew Thomas. Okay. Now most, who do you think is the most risky prospect out of these five offensive tackle uh, prospects? I'm going to go with Josh Jones just because you don't know if he's going to reach his end result, and that's what you're really drafting him for. Even though he is an upside pick, you're hoping he can reach those levels of his development, but he's not as transparent or as ready right now as some of these other guys that are listed before him. So I'm going to go with Josh Jones. Which one do you think is the best scheme fit for the outside zone scheme? Oh, it's probably a tie between Wirfs and Jones. I think either one of those guys would be perfect fits in his own scheme just because of how athletic they are. And I can't wait to see how Wirfs tests at the combine, man. I think he's going to be through the roof. Okay. And then this last category, I think, is the one that Jets fans are going to be really keying in on. Um, Which player, if you had to kind of put put your money on the player right now, I know it's early, which player do you think – is most likely to be the Jets pick at 11 among these five offensive tackles. 
So I'll just tell you a funny story. I actually, when I was at the Senior Bowl, we're watching all these prospects. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're seeing these guys do all these reps. And Joe Douglas is actually sitting like two seats over from me. Oh, wow. And he, he has his binoculars on. He's like examining every single O-line, D-line, one-on-one. And every time Josh Jones went, like he would, you could see him zoom in on his binoculars. So that was really cool to see. So they're going to have a lot of interest in him. Now, I don't know if they're going to necessarily pick him, but I think they're going to have a lot of interest in him. But if I had to go with one guy that I think they're really going to like, I think it's going to be Andrew Thomas, man, just because he's a guy, like I said, he reminds me so much of the Brickashaw Ferguson. And I'm sure that's something that probably came up in their scouting meetings. Maybe not that name, but just how reliable he is. And I think they have to get a guy that's ready to play right now, especially for Sam Darnold. We have to figure out what he is, especially entering his third year, I believe it is. We have to figure out just because the time is ticking on this rookie deal. He's not going to be cheap forever. And I think they have to figure out exactly what they have at Sam Darnold. So why not get the ready-made guy right now, Andrew Thomas? Well, Jordan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and talking about these offensive tackle prospects. Um, You know, I think most Jets fans are hoping that this offseason is one that, if it's not remembered for anything else, will be building up the offensive line and really surrounding Sam Darnold with playmakers and people who can make his life a little easier. Um, but for those people who may not know where to find you and find your work, um, where can they do that? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at NFL. That's at NFL. You can also find my work on the draftnetwork.com. We have a bunch of things coming out daily over there. We have the mock draft machine to where you can go through all seven rounds of the draft and pick whoever you please. So we have a really cool feature going on over there. We also have our TDN premium package to where we just released to where you have some really good features as well. You can also find me on the Locked On Football, College Football Podcast with my host, Jonah Tolls. We release shows uh, almost every day there. So you can find my podcast there. So uh, once again, you can find me on Twitter at NFL. That's at J-R-E-I-D. NFL and also the draftnetwork.com. Guys, if you're interested in following the draft process, Jordan is a must follow on Twitter. And the Locked On College Football podcast is really a must subscribe podcast in the Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from, just because they give super in depth um, and detailed analysis on players. And it's really unique among all the draft podcasts I listen to. So uh, I would highly recommend listening to that and following Jordan on Twitter. Um, I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode and we look forward to uh, sending out this episode soon. All right. Thank you.